It's been 10 weeks since we started going through this letter of the Apostle John. Walking with Jesus through 1 John. And as we get ready to land the series this morning, I think it will be helpful if we step back to the shoes of our brothers and sisters who were in a unique situation when John first wrote this letter to them. If John wrote this letter near the end of the first century, around 90-ish, that means that he's writing to believers who are about two to three generations removed from Jesus Christ when he died, rose, and ascended back to heaven. Many things had changed in the world. Now the whole Mediterranean region was pretty much under the thumb of the pagan Roman Empire. In 70 AD, the Romans had obliterated Jerusalem as well as the temple where they worshipped the Lord. And so as you can imagine, thousands of Jewish believers scattered all over the Mediterranean, even in the northern parts of Africa, but everywhere they went, they took the gospel with them. John himself, the disciple, left Jerusalem with all of them and went himself to Ephesus. By now, the apostles have been martyred. John is very likely the last one of the 12 who is still alive. And many of the first-hand eyewitnesses are also dead. Yet this still young church, about 60 years from Pentecost is still facing intense persecution, not just on the outside by Roman emperors and also from Jewish sects that still hate the name of Christ, but even the last one there from inside the church. Satan working to infiltrate the churches with false teachers who are trying to fill the believers with a bunch of baloney and lead them astray. Throughout his five chapters, John has been describing to us what we might call the secessionists. They claim to have fellowship with God. They deny their own sinfulness. They disregard God's commandments. They do not love Christians. John identifies them even as antichrist. They were in the church in Ephesus, but then left, they splintered off, and they're trying to take other believers with them. They deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. John says they belong to the world. They deny what God has said in Scripture through the apostles about his son. And in today, he's even going to have them in mind as he's talking about a sin that leads to spiritual death. What our brothers and sisters were facing before us, so close to Jesus. We could imagine how these young believers' faith was just shaken and tormented and, and maybe starting to have questions. Can I trust what the apostles have written about Jesus? Can can I believe that Jesus really is the promised Messiah? Can I put my faith in that he really is God the Son when so much around them, in the church and around them, has been falling apart? And now we fast forward to today, the 21st century. 
And it seems like it's even harder than ever today to have certainty about anything other than death and taxes. And maybe we've been asking those same questions. Can I really believe this and use this as my life compass? Can I really believe that Jesus is my Savior and eternal God? And so maybe like those early believers, we're tempted at times to question. Here's one example of modern-day uncertainty. This is Harvard president, former Harvard president, Drew Foss, said at her inauguration speech, she was president of Harvard University from 2007 to 2018. She said, truth is an aspiration, not a possession. In this, we challenge those who would embrace certainties. We must commit ourselves to the uncomfortable position of doubt. When one of the most highly intellectual universities in the world tells us that we can't be certain about anything and truth is just an aspiration, doesn't it feel like even the ground beneath our feet is crumbling? I mean, if the brightest at Harvard are saying they can't be certain, what hope is there for the rest of us? And so maybe like those first Christians John was writing to back in the first century, maybe sometimes our own certainty meter is fluctuating between the poles. One is, yeah, right, 10 would be 100%. But that's why, as John closes out this letter, he's going to repeat a word seven times. It's the word no. N-O-K-N-O-W. To know is not just to know about or to know of something. When John uses the verb to know, it's a very deep, intimate, factual, complete certainty and assuredness. Because he wants every single believer then and now to peg your certainty meter as far to the right as it can go. And so as we've walked with Jesus through 1 John, he lands on four certainties, four absolutes that we walk in every day as followers of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at the first one here. We'll begin at verse 13. This is why he wrote the epistle. He says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Here's the first no. That you may know that you have eternal life. Church, what is your first certainty? 
It's my possession of eternal life. To those believers who are shaken in their faith then, to believers who might be shaken now, whoever believes in the name of the Son of God is the same as believing in the person of the Son of God. And John says, you may know that you have eternal life. That means if you died today, it could happen to any one of us. Can you be certain that you would spend eternal life with God in heaven? John says, absolutely yes, 100%. That's why I've written that, so that you who believe may know that you have eternal life in his Son. But that is just John getting started. The next two verses describe another certainty that you have in this walk with Jesus. He says, and this is the confidence we have toward him, toward God that if we ask for something according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. What is certainty number two? It's my power in Christian prayer. When you pray to your heavenly Father, do you pray with confidence? Do you pray in a deep conviction that the one who holds the universe has his ears always inclined and attentive to you? And that he can't wait to hear your next prayer? I'm reminded of Jesus' teaching on prayer in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. As he's teaching the disciples about prayer, Jesus looks at them and he says, Which earthly father, if his son comes to him and asks for bread, right, he's hungry, how many of you earthly fathers would give him a stone instead? Or he continues, How many of you earthly fathers, if your son came to you and asked for fish, would hand him a snake instead? And so Jesus says, if you who are earthly fathers and perfect sinners know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father loves to give good things to his children who ask. Your prayer has great power in the name of Jesus Christ. I like what John does here in a literary move. Does exactly what he did earlier in chapter 3. He starts general and then he goes very specific. An example in daily life. In chapter 3, he was talking about the mark of a Christian is love. But love is not just talking the talk. 
Love is walking the walk. So that if we see a fellow Christian in need, to love that brother or sister is to help supply their need with our own material goods. Be the remedy. He does the same thing now with prayer. Yes, our prayer has power. God hears it and God hears he will answer the request. And look at how he hones it in now even more. If one of us sees a Christian brother or sister committing a sin not leading to death, he will ask God. That Christian will go to God in prayer on behalf of that other Christian that just committed a sin, and what will the result be? He will give him life. Restoration to the one who commits sins not leading to death. There is a sin, he continues, leading to death, meaning spiritual death. I'm not saying you should ask or pray concerning this. All unrighteousness is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to spiritual death. John is saying, the power of your prayer is so strong that you can pray on behalf of another Christian. And we might not see it here, but before God there, the result, the effect of your prayer for them is life. Now, something else on your radar might have been touched here in these words. Mine certainly was. John, what do you mean a Christian who commits a sin not leading to spiritual death? And on the other hand, there is a sin that does lead to spiritual death. What is that, and am I guilty of that kind of sin? Here's what he doesn't mean. A sin leading to spiritual death is not some kind of specific terrible sin. God does not rank sin. Sin is sin, and it's all disobedience. Or is it a believer's daily struggle and battle with sin? Nor is he talking about a believer who backslides into a sin that maybe he or she has repented of for the past decades, and they slid once again. That's not the sin leading to spiritual death. But what John means here is an outright apostasy against the faith, denying Jesus Christ and God's testimony concerning his own son, rejecting the work of a Holy Spirit, converting one's heart, and resolute impenitence. If you are concerned... Whether or not you committed the sin leading to death, that's evidence that you haven't. Because here's what John says in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God, Jesus, keeps him, and the evil one cannot touch him. Yes, we know that we are from God while the whole world around us lies in the grip of the evil one. What's your next certainty? What's he want you to know? 
your protection in Jesus Christ. We are so aligned with Jesus Christ and our faith that it's as if we can't even sin anymore. His blood so covers us from head to toe, it's as if that we can't even sin. Because Jesus keeps you in him. The world around us, on the other hand, there's a reason why it's going south. Martin Luther says this of the world. What are conditions like where Christ is not found? What is the world but a wretched hell and the kingdom of the devil, in which we find nothing but ignorance and contempt for God, nothing but lying, cheating, covetousness, eating too much, drinking too much, fornication, fighting, and murdering? What is this but the wretched devil himself? This is the kingdom of the world the devil drives and dominates it. So when we're tempted to ask, can things get worse here? Does Satan have a bottom to his evil? I don't think he does. And if the whole world around us is in his grip, is there really a bottom to how evil and bad it can get here? But you know what he can't do in this world? John says he can't touch you. He can tempt you. He can try you. He can oppress you. But he cannot cause you any kind of permanent spiritual loss because you are being kept by Jesus Christ. John has one more. One more certainty before he lets us go in his epistle. He says, and we know that the Son of God is present. He's here right now. And he's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are actually in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. I don't know how your posture is when you sit. Mine is not always according to my chiropractor standards. I like to slouch. I don't know how your posture is when you walk, if you walk evenly on both feet. But John says we can be certain of this. Our posture in Jesus Christ is perfect. That every day we walk with Jesus, whether we sit, we lay down, we get up, we go to work, we play, we are in him who is the true God and eternal life. There are so many different walks in this world. But there is one walk to which the others don't even come close. And that is a walk in Jesus Christ. These are your certainties in him. 
in this life. And in the next, it only gets even better. Amen.